Do you take Jesus seriously? It's a very important question. Most Christians do not. Now let me qualify that. I don't want to be unkind or unfair. When I say that most Christians don't take Jesus seriously, I mean they don't take his teaching seriously. I'd have to say, in all fairness, that most genuine Christians take his death and resurrection, his finished work on their behalf, seriously. What I don't think they take seriously is his teaching. And, by extension, the teaching of the apostles. I think they have a kind of a package deal going with Jesus. That we will buy the package that says, you have to believe this to go to heaven. And we will sign up for that, check that box. But the rest of our life, our daily life, we will determine what was good and evil on our behalf. We'll, we'll figure that out for ourselves. So that's not taking Jesus seriously. If you love me, keep my commandments, he says in John. And he's, he's, he's saying here there is no package deals. There is no minimum that you are to believe. You take Jesus in the whole or you take him not at all. You don't take him partly. You don't take a, a little bit of him. You don't take those aspects of him that you like and you're comfortable with. You take him in the whole or you don't take him at all. And of course that means you take his teaching seriously. So we are doing a sub-series called Only One Gospel. I don't think that the average, well I know for certain, that the average Christian takes Jesus seriously at all on this point. And it isn't even an a overt thing. Uh, if you were to ask, again, an average genuine Christian, if there's only one gospel, they would say, oh, yes, absolutely, certainly. But then they couldn't explain to you why there are hundreds of denominations why, if they were to go to 12 different churches over a series of 12 weeks and get 12 different slants on the gospel, why that is the case? Now, they may applaud this ecumenical thing where, where people of different stripes and versions and, and um, takes on the gospel can find some, some common core benefit, some common core fellowship based upon common core doctrines but they would have to admit that there's just a lot about what some Christians believe that others don't believe and yet they both call them Christians not everybody can be right folks and the uh, and let me just say it this way Jesus and the apostles never imagined the various and diverse forms of the gospel to Jesus and the apostles, there was one gospel. So then, we have to answer the question, why are there so many versions of the gospel? Why is there a Presbyterian gospel? Why is there a Baptist dispensational gospel? Why is there a Roman Catholic gospel? 
Why is there a Greek Orthodox gospel? Why is there a Reformed Baptist gospel? Why is there an independent fundamentalist gospel? Why, what's happened? Why the chaos? And what I would submit to you today is that the chaos and the confusion is not of God. There's never a point in church history where the risen Lord said, you know what, I've decided to go ahead and allow you all to have your own versions of the gospel and we'll all just try to get along until I return. That never happened and it never will happen. So what we want to look at in this series is one gospel, only one gospel. But we want to also seek to explain why there are so many versions of the gospel. We know that, that Satan himself is the agent of confusion. He is the cause and the source of chaos. And we know that he appears as an angel of light. And he works through human emissaries. And those human emissaries, those ministers of his, bring their own versions of the gospel. Now, those are pretty sobering thoughts, aren't they? If it's true that Satan himself, as an angel of light, presents a counterfeit gospel, and not only one, but untold numbers, and that he has been very successful to to bang these pots and pans together and blow horns and distract us and get us confused and bewildered and wondering, well, who has the truth? Then he wins. This is why we as Christians today ought to be so grateful that we own a Bible. Because it's there. The gospel is present for us. It's available to us. It's here. But the problem is most Christians have a some kind of a theological system, some kind of a theological tradition through which, the lens through which, they read the Bible. So they read the Bible, they read passages of the Bible, they read sections of the Bible, but they really don't read the Bible. Another problem is devotional reading of the Bible. And that is the proliferation of these little devotional booklets that look so cute and look so nice. And you can get up in the morning and you can spend 15 minutes over a cup of coffee and you can read one or two passages ripped out of context and have somebody of some stature offer their take that day on, on some kind of inspirational outlook on that gospel and and then you think you've read the text but you haven't or worse yet are these little boxes that have little promises for today a bible promise for the day where you pull out the little card and it gives you a, a scripture uh, and you are to use that as your bible promise for the day that's how most christians approach the text of scripture if they approach it at all and you simply can't follow Jesus well doing that. And your life 
this is where it the, the rubber meets the road. Your life will ultimately look like it. You'll either be living a very shallow, superficial existence, or your life will be a perpetual train wreck of chaos and misery, and you won't know why. It's like the woman told me once, you know, I really love Jesus, I just can't stay sober. Or the person on their fifth marriage, I really love Jesus, I just can't stay married. Or the Presbyterian man who came into my office and told me, you know what, I'm single, I like to have sex, I like to have a lot of sex, I think it's just sex, it's no big deal. And my church referred me to come see you. And he left thinking I was being a prude because I suggested his lifestyle, his promiscuity, his immorality was sin. He never didn't, he, as far as I know, he never changed his ways. So people, the world, don't, they don't have no use for Jesus. And Christians don't take him seriously as far as his teaching is concerned. But those who do, those who do take Jesus seriously and learn to read the Bible, as it was meant to be read, to, to accept the text, accept the Bible for what it says it is and what it says, will find life and a depth of life and a quality of life mentally and emotionally and spiritually and relationally that is rare in our world. And that's what I want for you. Jesus said it, didn't he? The thief comes up to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. So there's a lot of good work being done right now in the scholarly academic level to recover biblical theology. We have, since the Reformation, adopted a lot of theological systems in order to support the church-state system in Europe that was then imported into the United States. And those theological systems stayed in place and were taught as if they were gospel truth when in fact they weren't. They were gospel distortions that were created in order to fit into a, a European state church system that should have never been imported into the, into the United States, into the New World. And so there is a recovery going on in which in the scholarly world, a lot of good men and women doing a lot of good work to, to move away from theological systems, uh, especially covenant theology and dispensational theology, uh, some aspects of Lutheran theology, uh, and, and quit trying to make these, these holdovers work for us and stop presenting them as the whole counsel of God, which they are not. And instead, return to biblical theology, meaning we allow the text to say what it says within its own context, its own covenantal and eschatological context. Now, don't let those big words scare you. They're only big because you're not familiar with them. They're only big because you've never heard them, and they're only big because you're not being taught well. Uh, 
the gospel comes to us within a covenantal structure. And there's a couple of books I, I've recommended before, and I'll recommend again. And that is God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. And there's a second book called Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God by Gordon Fee. Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God by Gordon Fee. These are very readable reader-friendly books. They're not big, thick, scholarly um, expositions. They're, they're very easy to read, and they do an excellent job of helping you recover a biblical view of the gospel and to move away from these nonsensical, man-made um, uh, theological systems that are imposed upon the text in which you come away with something other than the whole counsel of God. And as I've said before, you must have the whole counsel of God in order to um, be able to be whole. You're not going to be whole as a person on part of the gospel. Okay, so today I want to mention to you, uh, continue to talk to you about one gospel. Last time I talked to you about the fallen man suppresses the truth. We looked at the fall in the garden and how that it was an absolute, it was an utter fall. And it set in place a propensity afterwards for fallen man to distort the truth. He may hear the truth. He or she may acknowledge the truth, but they have no place for the truth. Uh, the depraved mind and heart will take the truth and twist it, and distort it, and pervert it every time. Unless, of course, it's accompanied by grace through faith, because faith does come by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But the natural man, the natural man will hear the truth of God, hear the truth of the gospel, and have no place for it. And so in his mind and heart, he'll find a way to be cynical about it, or to dismiss it, or to twist it and pervert it and distort it. That's what depravity does with the truth. And that's what he's always done. And there's not, it's not going to be different. And so the, the, the ability to approach God, as Adam did in the garden, uh, in innocence, and with joy, in fellowship, in intimacy, where he would walk with God in the cool of the day, in fellowship, open fellowship, free of shame, free of guilt, was lost in the fall. And so what man now possesses, fallen man possesses, is a religious impulse. There, he, he can't escape the reality of the fact that there is something bigger than him. But there's a religious impulse of the flesh that will undoubtedly, unquestionably, every time distort the truth. And when a person comes to Christ, they have to be taught well. They have to be taught accurately. They have to be taught methodically and clearly and, and regularly to overcome that old fleshly impulse to become bewitched, as Paul said in Galatians 3.1. 
Who hath bewitched you that you would no longer believe the truth? So even though the Galatians had actually been uh, regenerate, that they had received the gospel, they had had a genuine experience with the Holy Spirit. They were true Christians. These false teachers had come in, and they had begun to buy their false package, and the old religious impulse of the flesh had risen up and bewitched them so that they were listening now and walking according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit, even though they were people of the Spirit. It was a horribly tragic situation. And that's why Paul, and you read that letter, it is so intense. Paul is so intense, issuing a double apostolic curse on that false gospel. And saying that he was laboring again for them that they would be that Christ would be formed in them so let's look briefly today at the golden calf situation and that's uh, found in Exodus 32 and 22 through 23 is what we focus here we turn there Exodus 32 22 through 23 um I'll start at verse 19, actually. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to the pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Moses was not happy. Oh, that we had one-tenth of that kind of zeal today for the holiness and goodness of God. Verse 21, He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Let me read that again. What did these people do to you that they led you into such great sin? Excuse me. That you led them into great such great sin. We'll talk about that more. Like people, like priests. The propensity for church leaders, for Christian leaders, to preach down to the people's sins rather than call them to reach up to the holiness and goodness of God. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. He's blaming it on the people then. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them. Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they threw, then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. End quote. That's a little bit of comic relief here in uh, the book of Exodus. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and this calf just jumped out of the fire. There it was. 
Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And we'll pause there. The golden calf. That was the beginning. That was the fleshly impulse to re, uh, recreate, reform God in our own image. The golden calf was no doubt an image that was very familiar to them in Egypt. Golden calves and golden animals and people with uh, figures with human bodies and animal heads and all these other imageries that they had in these idols in Egypt. And they were very familiar with them. And so when they came out of Egypt, went through the Red Sea, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai now, and they're, they're not sure what's happened. Moses has gone up to receive the law, to talk with God, and he's been gone so long, they're nervous. They wonder what's happened to Moses. And so they grab Aaron, who is supposed to be the guardian of things while Moses is gone, and they demand that, they, that he make them a god. After all, he's the priest, right? Make us a god. Because so, we don't know where this Moses went. And so Aaron, of course, fashioned out of their gold a golden calf. Had that done. And that set in motion a long history of idolatrous Israel. In the Aaronic tradition, the, the legacy of Aaron is a priesthood that plays down to the people's demands as opposed to standing up and leading them to God. Hosea 4.9 speaks to that. Like people, like priests. Instead of leading the people to the holiness and commands of God, the priests listened to the people, played down to the people, sought to please the people. Listen, there is no more pathetic creature on the planet than a people-pleasing pastor. Nothing. Nothing more pathetic. It would be like walking into any home, any family home, and finding that the children are in charge and that the parents are walking around trembling for fear of what the children might demand next. And so let me turn to Hosea and read that text. It's a real sad situation. In Hosea chapter 4, the prophet says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring to, the, to against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up, and all who live in it waste away. 
The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. But let no one bring a charge, let no one accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges against the priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. And God is speaking to the priests here. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. End quote. So the history of the priesthood of Aaron was not is not a good one. The priests were cowards. The priests kowtowed to the people. And it was a an alliance between them all. In fact, in Jeremiah 5, I'll read that too real quick. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30, it says, a, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? End quote. So the principle here is that the golden calf was simply a symptom. The golden calf was simply a symptom of cowardice leadership. Of a leader, namely Aaron, who chose to placate the demands of the people, to tickle their ears, rather than stand up and speak for God. And of course, the result was beyond tragic. Thousands died that day. And it took Moses and his zeal for God, his clarity, his conviction, his purpose, his compassion and his passion as well for God and his compassion on the people to bring about order again. This, this story in Exodus 32 of Aaron placating the people which produced the golden calf and the people were dancing and singing and drinking and partying and it and the, the the enemies of Israel were looking on laughing these are just a bunch of crazy people these are the people of God these are the people of the God who brought them out of Egypt 
What kind of a God would even want these people? Why would he save them? But the principle, the central principle here is this. There is more than one gospel in the world today because of cowardice Christian leaders. Period. There's the gospel, the biblical gospel, and then there are untold numbers of golden calves. Because somebody somewhere decided that listening to the voice of the people or listening to the voice of the state or the authorities or somebody other than the spirit was more important than the integrity of the gospel. Imagine, if you will, and I'll close with this, imagine, if you will, what it would be like if we lived in a world where there was, in fact, in practice, only one gospel. Because there is, in truth, only one gospel. And that's what we're pursuing here. I'm speaking to you in the negative a little bit here because we have to understand why there are so many gospels. But the fact is, there's only one gospel. And it's found within its own context within the scripture. One of the precious um, principles that was recovered in the Reformation was that scripture interprets scripture. Not only is the Bible our sole authority, we don't have to look to theological systems or the traditions of men or the, the, the teachings of men in order to impose it on the scripture. Scripture stands as its own authority. We don't need a religious tradition to, through which to read the scripture. Scripture stands on its own, on its own authority, and it is sufficient as the Spirit illuminates it and applies it to the hearts and minds of the believer. In the hierarchical clergy, I mean, we, we did a lot in the Reformation to recover very important parts of the gospel truth. But there were only so many men over only so many decades. And one of the things they failed to do was to get rid of this hierarchical clergy. These men who, they got rid of the priestly class, except for the Anglicans. They got rid of the priestly class, but they held on to a pseudo-priestly class. Meaning these credentialed, elevated clergymen who were more interested in passing on a tradition and interpreting scripture based upon that preconceived tradition than they were actually hearing the voice of scripture through the ministry of the Spirit. And you, beloved, have suffered as a result. Now we have all kinds of charlatans today too who use the Bible, use the scripture to twist, distort, and make it fit their little scheme. So the goal here is to recover the truth of the gospel. There's only one gospel and to do so by learning 
to read the text well. And before this series is out, I hope to have helped you have done that. And to read it prayerfully in utter, absolute dependence upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind and to guide you into all truth. And as you do that, you will develop the voice, a sensitivity to the voice of your shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will lead you out of these community sheep pens. And he will, lead, he will call you by name. He will lead you out. And he will lead you to the green pastures of genuine shalom. Grounded in the truth of the gospel. The one gospel. Well, we'll stop there for now. And we'll pick it up next time. We'll talk about the tradition of the elders. Israel went into exile ultimately. They came out of exile, no longer worshiping the idols of the nations. And by the time that Jesus arrived on the scene, they had already adopted another form of idolatry, and that was the tradition of the elders. And we'll talk about that next time. Amen.